Hi, this is Josie Posey. And this is Sylvia Bellavin. And you're, you're listening, listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and this is your Sunday sermon. Today is Sunday, March 19th. I'm really excited to be back with you once again this week as we continue in our movement toward Easter in the series we started last Sunday called Passion, It Wasn't the Nails. Remember, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, it wasn't the nails that kept him there. It wasn't the threat of the Roman legions or the hatred of the Jewish elite. Rather, it was his passion for humanity that led him to take the punishment of our own sins upon himself. Jesus gave up his life so that we might have eternal life. As we learned last week, he was fueled by unconditional and sacrificial love. And God the Father so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God gave us the greatest gift, Jesus, through whom we might experience everlasting life and forgiveness. As you may have heard, in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it says, It is more blessed to give than to receive. In Ernest Gordon's true account of life in a World War II Japanese prison camp through the Valley of the Kwai, there's a story that truly moves me. It's about a man who, through giving it all, literally transformed an entire camp of soldiers. The man's name was Angus McGillivray. Angus was a Scottish prisoner in one of the camps filled with Americans, Australians, and Britons who had helped build the infamous bridge over the River Kwai. The camp had become an ugly situation. A dog-eat-dog mentality had set in. Allies would literally steal from each other and cheat each other. Men would sleep on their packs and yet have them stolen from right underneath their heads. Survival was everything. The law of the jungle prevailed until the news of Angus McGillivray's death spread throughout the camp. Rumors spread in the wake of his death. No one could believe Big Angus had succumbed. He was strong, one of those whom they expected to be the last to die. Actually, it wasn't the fact that his death shocked the men, but the reason that he died. Finally, they pieced together the true story. The Argyles, who were Scottish soldiers, took their buddy system very seriously. Their buddy was called their mucker, and these Argyles believed that it was literally up to each other to take care of them to make sure each mucker survived. Angus's mucker, though, was dying, and everyone had given up on him. Everyone, of course, but Angus. He had made up his mind that his friend would not die. Someone had stolen his mucker's blanket, so Angus gave him his own, telling the mucker that he had just come across an extra one. Likewise, every mealtime, Angus would get his rations and take them to his friend, stand over him, and force him to eat them, again stating that he was able to get a little extra food. Angus was going to do anything and everything to see that his buddy got what he needed to recover. But as Angus's mucker began to recover, Angus collapsed, slumped over, and died. The doctors discovered that he had died of starvation complicated by exhaustion. He had been giving of his own food and shelter. He had given everything he had, even his very life. The ramifications of his acts of love and unselfishness had a startling impact on the compound. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15:12. A word circulated for the reason of Angus McGillivray's death, and the feel of the camp began to change. Suddenly, men began to focus on their mates, their friends, and humanity. They began to focus on living beyond survival, of giving oneself away. 
they began to pool their talents. One was a violin maker, another was an orchestra leader, another was a cabinet maker, and yet another a professor. Soon the camp had an orchestra full of homemade instruments and a church called Church Without Walls, and it was so powerful, so compelling, that even the Japanese guards attended. The men began a university, a hospital, and a library system. The place was transformed, and all but smothered love revived, and all because one man named Angus gave all he had for his friend. For many of those men, this turnaround meant survival. What happened is an awesome illustration of the potential that's unleashed when one person actually gives it all away. In 2 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul is talking about generosity and giving. He concludes this section by proclaiming in verse 15, Thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. The gift that he's talking about, of course, is Jesus. And it is a gift to all humanity that Jesus left his heavenly post to be with us. He was fueled by love, as we've already discussed. But if love was the fuel, then there was also several other additives present in the life of Jesus. As we'll learn today, one of those irreplaceable additives was humility. Jesus was and is the humble king who serves a world in desperate need. So let's look together at a specific passage of scripture that's going to help us understand how Jesus displayed his passion for humanity while on earth and on the cross. Turn in your Bible or Bible app to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and here's what he has to say about Jesus. So you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, he took the humble position of a slave, and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that Paul calls us to have the same mindset as Christ before we are told what the mindset is. I wonder how many of us have some level of a conditional faith. You know, like, God, I will go, I'll do what you're calling me to do, but only if it aligns with my own priority, only if it aligns with my own schedule or comfort zone. Paul, more than many, came to understand that those who are used by God for great things are often outside of their comfort zones. He knew that all of his life had to be surrendered to God, which begs the question for us today, have you surrendered everything to God? Have you surrendered your thoughts to God? your mindset to God. Let's talk about some key aspects of how Jesus modeled humility. The first aspect Jesus modeled was to think in humility. George Bernard Shaw once said, those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. And if you're going to think like Christ and have the mindset of Christ, then I imagine most of us here today need some fairly drastic mental reform. Thankfully, the Bible has some very specific instructions and encouragement about the mind and thoughts therein. One of the most well-known comes from Philippians 4.8, which says, Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. You know, so often our thoughts wander off into deep and dark territory. We can get ourselves stuck somewhere and even begin to believe things that simply aren't true. I'm sure there are many of you who struggle with this very thing. Paul is saying in this verse that the antidote is to fix our thoughts on things that are true. Do you see that? 
This includes facts and statements that are in accordance with reality, not lies, rumors, or embellishments. They are sincere thoughts. They are loyal, faithful, proper, reliable, and genuine. You know, truth is a characteristic of God. And then we are to fix our thoughts on things that are honorable. These things that are worthy of respect, dignified, and exalted in character or excellence. We're supposed to fix our thoughts on things that are right. Thoughts and plans that meet God's standards of rightness. They're in keeping with the truth. They are righteous. We're to keep our thoughts on things that are pure, free from contamination or blemish, unmixed and unmodified, wholesome. Paul probably was speaking of moral purity here, often very difficult to maintain in thoughts. Next, we're to fix our thoughts on things that are lovely, thoughts of great moral and spiritual beauty, not of evil. Next, we're to fix our thoughts on things that are admirable, things that speak well of the thinker, thoughts that recommend, give confidence in, afford approval or praise, reveal positive and constructive thinking. A believer's thoughts, if heard by others, should be admirable, not embarrassing. Next, we're taught in that verse to fix our thoughts on things that are excellent. Moral excellence, I think, is what Paul is writing about here. Nothing that is in substandard quality in any way, shape, or form. And lastly, we are to fix our thoughts on things that are worthy of praise. This phrase could be restated as anything that God deems praiseworthy. So obviously, this is all easier said than done, but it's a good reminder for when the mind starts to wander. And it's a great place to start if you want to have the mindset of Christ. But the other encouragement from Romans 12, too, gives us some extremely practical mindset advice. Here's what it says. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. As believers, we're called to live as citizens of a future world. Yes, there's going to be pressure to conform, to continue living according to the script written by the world. But believers can't give in to that pressure. The transformation that Paul talked about in that verse is from the inside out. And the change must begin in the mind where all thoughts and actions begin. Much of the work is done by God's Spirit in us, and the tool most frequently used is God's Word. As we memorize and meditate on God's Word, our way of thinking changes. Our minds become first informed and then conformed to the pattern of God, the pattern by which we were originally designed. When believers have had their minds transformed and are becoming more like Christ, they'll know what God wants, and they'll want to do it because it's good and pleasing to God and perfect for them. And the will of God was at the forefront of the mind of Christ. In the Gospel of Luke, we get a picture of Jesus praying to God on the Mount of Olives. Luke 22, 42-44 says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Jesus was in an emotional state of agony when he prayed. His focus was probably not so much on the painful death, but on the agony of being separated from God. Even still, he humbled himself and gave himself to the will of God, which led to the cross. The next aspect Jesus showed us was how to act in humility. Jesus had a humble mindset and posture. Look again at Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7. It says, Though he, meaning Jesus, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, he took the humble position of a slave, and was born as a human being. Jesus acted in humility in the most unbelievable way. 
Rather than coming to earth to demand others serve him, Jesus gave up his divine privileges. This doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being God. Rather than coming the first time as a king, Jesus chose not to exhibit his unlimited powers. He came to serve rather than be served. He chose the humble position of a servant rather than the position of God. And the rest, as they say, is history. Many years ago, I was in Carrollton, Texas, working with two friends of mine on a music project. After the session was over that day, we went to a Denny's restaurant there in Carrollton. Our waiter was a tall man with a South African accent. I watched him as he hurried about between tables, working hard to serve the many customers in his area that night. There was a refined quality about him as he spoke, and I wondered how this gentle, intelligent soul had ended up waiting tables in a family restaurant in Carrollton. We asked him what kind of work he did previously in his own country, and he replied that he had run several large companies. It was clear he had been an executive. I was awestruck that he could do such menial work with such a wonderful attitude toward even the most rude patrons of which there were several that night. But, he replied, I now have the privilege of serving others. And with that, he bowed his head, laid our check on the table, and walked off to assist other diners. I couldn't stop thinking about this man the rest of the evening for many days after, and I started to ponder the wonder of encountering true humility up close. I felt I had held a rare, dazzling jewel worth an entire kingdom in my hands for just a brief moment, and I longed to see more. Stories of great humility almost always cause us to take a step back and offer our admiration to those involved. Obviously, the example of Jesus, who gave his very life for those he loves, stands as the gold standard of humility and sacrifice. But maybe these stories are so striking because they're so rare. It's become almost unbelievable to us that people would take time out of their busy lives to serve and love others, which is probably why Jesus told us to act in humility, to serve and love one another, and to give all the glory to God in the process. Humility is fundamentally about others. It's not about thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking about yourself less. It's about focusing your time, energy, and thoughts on others, becoming more we-focused and less me-focused. Humility is so powerful because being selfish is our normal operating procedure. And Jesus taught us to break the norm, be radical, and love others. It starts with how we think. It grows into selfless acts of service for others, and it continues in obedience to the great calling of Christ in our lives. The last aspect of how Jesus modeled humility is that we should obey in humility. One of the most important steps we can take as it relates to mirroring Christ's humility is the step of obedience. It's one thing to act in a humble way toward others, but it's another to obey humbly before God. In Philippians 2.8, Paul says that when Jesus appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Frequently, obedience may cost something while birthing something wonderful. Do you remember the scene in scripture when Jesus was sentenced to death? Turn in your Bibles with me to Mark 15, verses 1 to 15. Mark 15, verses 1 to 15, and follow along as I read. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and teachers of religious law, the entire high council, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said it. Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they are bringing up against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. 
Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, any one the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate asking him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews? Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to Roman soldiers to be crucified. Even Pilate, the one who gets to decide what happens to Jesus, doesn't believe Jesus did anything to deserve death, and yet he does. This is what obedience to the Father looked like for Jesus. How often do we pray a similar prayer as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, may your will be done. I mean, there's something humbling about realizing how incapable we are to save ourselves. We're called to entrust that part to Jesus' sacrifice. This is what obedience looks like for us day to day. It looks like bowing before Christ every day on our knees, inviting him into our story and thanking him for his sacrificial love. And that sacrifice is what obedience cost Christ. It cost him his very life. But what did Jesus' obedience do? The Bible makes it clear that Jesus did not stay dead. Instead, all of the pain and suffering in the life of Christ served a purpose, just as it does in yours and mine. Do you believe God can use the hard times in your life for good? Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 read, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see, all along, God was working in the very life of Christ. The same is true for us. God is able to use every situation, every frustration, every obstacle, every last thing for the good of those who love him. And as we learn to trust him, we learn the value of obedience and faithfulness, which leads us to look more and more like Christ. John 15 verses 9 to 13 says, I have loved you even as my father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. In this passage, Jesus invites his disciples and us to remain in his love and to keep his commandments. He invites us to be obedient and then he offers us a new commandment to love one another as he loved us, to lay down our lives for others, just like he did. It's that agape love that we talked about last week, that selfless love, considering others more important than ourselves. So consider the road of humility this coming week, beloved. Where are the areas in your life that you need to think about others? Put them first and trade your life for theirs. How can you lift up others, encourage them, and help them to feel love. As you journey through this week, I pray that God will fill you with answers and you will act as you move forward in great humility as your mind continues to be transformed to that of Christ. Join me in a closing prayer. Lord God, help us today to put others before ourselves. 
Help us to be obedient and faithful to your high calling. In your blessed and holy name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.